Imagine for a moment one of the best celebrations you've ever had. The food is bountiful, beautiful, and tasteful. The music melodious. The gathering is wholesome. Either a couple you're thrilled to see wedded or a tribute to a person's honorable work. And the people, they're all delightful. Each conversation you have is stimulating and engaging. Laughter rings out at well-told stories. It's the perfect gathering. You don't want it to end. When I think of the gatherings that come close to resembling this, I think of weddings, my own wedding, and the weddings of our friends when we were recent college grads, and each was a reunion with good friends we hadn't seen in a while. I think of the 80th birthday party of a very successful businessman in our congregation from Vancouver, British Columbia, and the delicacies that reflected his culture, shark fin soup, among others. I recall family reunions were no joke. There was a huge room like the size of the great room below us, and literally there is food wall to wall, desserts like you wouldn't believe, a feast. Gathering with people you love, grandma's bouncing little babies on their knees. Now I know, even hearing about this is painful. This is one of the many things we're grieving right now in this pandemic. I cannot wait until I can once again host people in our home for a meal, for a party. And I'm hoping that as a church community, whenever this is all over, we can have a huge party like this with food and music and stories of how God has met us in this time. You've been warned, save the date. Our story today takes place in such a setting. It's a wedding. It's a joyous occasion. Everyone's dressed up. The food's amazing. The community's gathered. But there's a problem. And while the problem may not seem like a big deal to us, how the problem is handled offers us great help and great hope in how we can face our current challenges. This story gifts us with an example and an assurance that offers the sustenance we need to continue journeying on. You've just heard the story, but I want to walk through the passage verse by verse, making some comments along the way and answering some basic questions. Afterwards, we'll take a closer look at that example and assurance, the help and the hope I believe God wants us to hear today. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. I invite you to follow along in your Bibles as I go. Verses 1 to 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. The third day? From what? Likely, this is three days after Jesus called the disciples to follow him in John 1, 43 to 51. One of those disciples who he has a conversation with is Nathaniel, whose hometown is Cana. Now, Cana is like Jesus' hometown, Nazareth, little backwoods town. In fact, the two aren't far from each other. Mary, Jesus' mother, seems to have a sort of special role here, either because she's family, some have suggested she's the aunt of the bride, or because she's helping run the catering. 
She's mentioned first. Remember, likely Joseph has died at this point. She's privy to the knowledge that the wine is running low. And when she eventually instructs the servants later on, she seems to have some sort of authority. So here's the scene. Lavish, tasteful food. Crowds of people huddled together, telling stories, music, kids sneaking dessert a ton and then burning off their sugar rush by busting out the new dance moves. An older couple of 60-plus years of marriage dancing slowly, their heads pressed gently together. And Jesus, the Son of God, is there. If your perception of Christianity is all drudgery and no fun, that's just not consistent with the picture we see of Jesus on the pages of the New Testament. Jesus was always sharing meals with people. He was not too busy doing his Father's work that he couldn't enjoy the good gifts of family, friends, food, music, and dancing. Jesus reveled in good, clean fun. But it seems all good things must come to an end. Verse 3 explains, eventually the wine runs out. Now this may not seem like a big deal to us, first world problems, but actually this is a problem in the first century. Not because they were winos, drunkenness was disgraceful actually, but partly because you had two options for drink, water or wine. And more importantly, this is a wedding. Weddings in the first century were the highlight of what was otherwise a difficult existence. The groom's family would host relatives and friends, often the whole town, for up to a whole week. It was their responsibility to see that guests were sufficiently provided for. Remember, this is a culture in which, in which hospitality is not optional. It is essential. Without Ubers or hotels, it's your sacred duty to provide for travelers. Failing to provide for a guest at a wedding was not only deeply embarrassing as a social taboo, your entire family's honor was at stake. You'd be the talk of the town for years to come. Some might even consider a bad omen on the marriage that it was doomed. Verse 3. When the wine had gone, some translations say when the wine had gave out, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. It's clear from Jesus' reply to her in the next verse, Mary is not simply informing Jesus of a fact. She is asking him to act. Honey, the diaper's dirty. Translation, would you please change the baby? Or the dishes in the dishwasher are clean. Translation, please empty the dishwasher. Mary knows that this couple of limited resources will be shamed by the entire community if the wine runs out. So she searches the crowd to find the one person she knows can do something about it. Maybe she feels responsible because she's the chief caterer wedding planner. Maybe she's motivated by familial love. This is her niece she's known since she was a girl. She wants her day to be special. Maybe she's motivated out of compassion of similar life circumstances. She knows what it's like to grow up with limited resources. Remember those two doves at Jesus' dedication? Or maybe she wants to spare this family the pain she herself experienced at her own non-idyllic wedding. Bulging tummy, rumors flying, pity in nearly every face she looked at. 
For whatever the reason, Mary finds Jesus and says quietly, the wine has run out. Let's pause right there. Because we too have moments when the wine runs out. We have moments where we've got a problem, where he, we hit the wall. The marriage or the family is in trouble. The doctor appointment did not go as we'd hoped. Or we are troubled by events we see in the news. What do we do when the wine runs dry? Sometimes I have myself a good cry. I did this week. Sometimes we phone a friend. Sometimes we resolutely put our head down and fight it. We can beat this. We try to take control of the situation. Or we can pull a Mary and we can turn to the one person who can actually change the reality of the situation. Watch what Mary does here. Watch her faith in action. Some Mary stories depict her as humble, meek, and mild. May it be to me, as you have said. But Mary has some serious holy chutzpah here. Watch this. Verse 4. Jesus replied, Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Now, before you teach your children not to talk like Jesus to their mother, there are a few things we need to know. First, few words can cause most people in our day to bristle like the word woman. But we can't read the Bible solely through our own cultural lens. This word in Greek, gunai, can mean either woman or mother, and it is not a disrespectful word. In fact, Jesus uses this word in John 19, 26, when in his final breath, he gasps to John, the writer of this book, and to his mother, woman, behold your son, son, behold your mother. This is one of the most tender moments in the Bible. As he's dying, this firstborn son is ensuring his widow mother will be cared for. So not woman, but dear woman, mother, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. This phrase, my hour, is used throughout John's book to refer to the purpose for which Jesus came, his sacrificial death on the cross. Everything in Jesus' life gets sifted by this priority. Jesus, good Jewish son that he is, wants to honor the request of his mother as the fifth commandment states. But he also, as God's son, needs to honor God's authority and follow the path God has set before him. Like last week when Jesus remained at the temple after the Passover feast, Jesus is putting some space between himself and his mother. Mary needs to learn, like everyone else, that while Jesus is her son, he is also her Lord. Now, if I'm Mary, I wonder if I'd stop right there. You're right, Jesus. I'll figure something out. But Mary, God bless her, is undeterred in her faith. Hour or not, she looks intently at the person she knows better than anyone else on earth. Mamas know their babies. She had witnessed the wonder in his eye at his first candlelight, the delight in the feel of a puppy's velvety ear. She knew the meaning of his every facial expression. And she locks eyes with him and says in verse 5 to the servants, do whatever he tells you. She doesn't know how he will do it. She just trusts he will. 
despite his response, she knows his heart is too big to sit this one out. This is why Mary is the first and greatest disciple. She doesn't say a lot, but she's got two zingers that sum up all of discipleship. May it be unto me, as you have said, when her entire world gets rocked and she's got to adjust to a new plan and do whatever he tells you. That's what it means to follow Jesus. That's the perfect posture of surrender and unwavering trust. I want to pause again because I wonder what might happen if we were to live by Mary's example. If we in our own lives personally and as a community lived by this phrase, do whatever he tells you. What is it God has been telling you to do? You've been feeling like you need to do more to right the injustices of this world? Do whatever he tells you. You've been feeling like you need to care more for your physical health? Do whatever he tells you. You've been considering slowing down more, or paying more attention to your children, or engaging in silent prayer? Do whatever he tells you. You sense you need to be open to a new direction in life? Do whatever he tells you. Because when we do, we may witness God change our reality. Verses 6 to 8, nearby stood six stone water jars, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. That's nearly 180 gallons of water or 700 bottles of wine. Jesus says to the servants, fill the jars with water. Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And now these servants have their own faith test. Who draws the short end of that stick and gets to take the water-ish wine to the master of the banquet? The new kid or the seasoned most respected waiter, someone like Mr. Carson from Downton Abbey? At what point does the liquid go from clear to deep red, both in sight and in smell? When the master of the banquet sips the cup, the language is literally tasted the water wine became there is tense silence. His response alleviates their anxiety immediately. Verse 10. Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. In the midst of scarcity, the wine has run out. Jesus takes an ordinary substance water and makes it extraordinary both in quantity and in quality. Some 700 bottles of this stuff. That's enough for any small town wedding. Like leftover wedding cake, they're going to be drinking this stuff for days. And it's not two buck chuck. It's Cana's best blends. And then our narrator explains in verse 11 what's really going on here. What Jesus did in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And his disciples believed in him. This word signs is used throughout the book. In fact, John arranges his book around seven signs, a number of completeness, gradually increasing in power until the culminating seventh sign of Jesus' own resurrection. Now, signs are John's shorthand way for describing what life will look like when Jesus is fully reigning on this earth, when his kingdom is finally and fully established. 
Jesus' kingdom is always now and not yet. Meaning, Jesus' kingdom has already come. It's here now. It's present tense. When he entered our world at Christmas, through his life, death, and resurrection, established his kingdom. But Jesus' kingdom has also not yet fully come. It's future tense. He promises that when he returns a second time, whenever that day is, he will fully establish his rule of goodness and justice and mercy on this earth, and things will finally be the way they're supposed to be. But we aren't there yet. Life is ripe with toil and brokenness and hardship and sorrow. So John drops these seven signs throughout his biography of Jesus as clues, hints, a foreshadow, a little taste of what it will be like when Jesus' kingdom has fully come to earth. These little glimpses are just that, glimmers from the future that spill over into our present. The good stuff of heaven is invading earth momentarily. And one day, John wants us to know, those little glimmers will be the norm. We are to take comfort and hope when we see and experience those little glimmers as few and far between as they may be. So by ending the story this way, John wants us to know there's more going on here than just Jesus saving face for this family. Most people at the party didn't even know what Jesus did. Remember, this is a covert miracle. Only Mary, the servants, and the disciples know Jesus has done this. Any other way would have defeated his purpose of quietly supplying what this family lacked. But it's also a sign for us modern disciples to believe in him. That when Jesus is king on this earth, just as it is in heaven, the wine will never run out. This story gives us help and hope when our own wine runs out. When our resources are depleted, when our reputation is at stake, or our family is in trouble. First, when the wine runs out, put your trust in Jesus. Go to him in the midst of the crisis, ask for help, and then do whatever he tells you, even if it doesn't make sense. I'm not talking about demanding a miracle. As Mary's brief interchange with Jesus depicts, when we come to Jesus to, for help, we don't presume our relationship will dictate the outcome. He is God. As much as he loves us, he is not our puppet. We do not pull the strings to get the outcome we want. We do not follow a genie Jesus. But we can, like Mary, lock eyes with the one who loves us more than anyone else and look to him to see us through. We can trust in his goodness. We can trust that in his love, he cannot not help us. We can trust he will alter the reality of the situation in some way, though we know not how, either by altering our circumstances or by altering us. I'm talking about holy chutzpah here, friends. What is the one area of your life you need to trust that God can transform your reality? When the wine runs dry, lock eyes with Jesus and do whatever he tells you. Second, when the wine runs out, remember a day is coming 
when the wine will never run dry. Jesus hints at this by how, John hints at this by how he begins and ends this story. The miracle happens on what day? The third day, just like Jesus' resurrection. And this water-turned wine is the first sign he does to reveal his glory. Remember, signs are a way of pointing to something greater. They're meant to serve as reminders for us of what good future awaits us when Jesus has fully established his kingdom on earth. It's not a coincidence. This takes place at a feast, celebrating the goodness of relationship, the goodness of food, music, community. Because when Jesus comes back to this earth and establishes his kingdom fully, Revelation says, there will be a banquet. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory for the wedding supper of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Just before dying at the Last Supper, Jesus raises his wine glass claiming, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. This celebration in Podunk, Cana, foreshadows a greater celebration that is yet to come, one in which the wine will never run out, for the master of the banquet, Jesus himself, will ensure bountiful provision, wine that gladdens the heart, abiding joy. Friends, the best is yet to come. Jesus has saved the best for last. One day, the master of the banquet will take his place at the table, summon the community, serve the finest of wines, and we will feast together with pure hearts, delightful conversation, unending joy, and give him glory for all he has done. You've been warned. Save the date. The wedding supper of the Lamb is coming. Jesus has saved the best for last. Until then, may we be people who invite his transforming presence into every desperate situation, expectantly longing for him to make water-turned wine, and then looking forward to the day when the wine won't run out. I'll drink to that. Let's pray. Oh God, we long for this feast. We long for the day when you will return and all shall be well and all manner of things shall be well. It's hard to believe it's coming. Do you still turn water into wine? Convict us now by your Holy Spirit. Minister to each one of us in the places in which we need to believe that most. That we would come to you, lock eyes with you, put our hope and trust in you to meet us in our wine dry places and that we would have hope when we remember this sign that the best is yet to come this we pray in jesus name and always for the greater fame of his name